This is Ibarian X, and this is The Candid Frame. Of the hundreds of interviews we've shared with you over the years, we've heard different stories of how people became photographers. Some of them studied in college and started when they were relatively young. For others, it became a second career after quitting or losing a job. But Sean Tucker is, I think, the only photographer we've had on the show whose previous career was that of a priest. For about a decade, he was a man of the cloth, but eventually he was unceremoniously removed from the priesthood. And it happened not because of a loss of faith or some moral failing, but rather a growing dissatisfaction with how the church's calling to serve people spiritually didn't always extend itself to serving their needs in the real world. And it, it kind of came to a head in, in about 2008, actually. There were very serious um, xenophobic attacks in South Africa where um, local South Africans were attacking uh, immigrants coming in from Somalia and um, Angola and Zimbabwe coming to look for work because they felt that they were coming to take jobs. And people were dying in the streets, you know. They were having their shops set on fire and they were being beaten to death. And this is the time I was working for church in Cape Town. And uh, I, I uh, said to the church, we need to do something. We need to get down there now. And I said, you know, let's take the bus and at least just get people out. And they said, no, we can't do that because, you know, we've been given this bus and we have to be good stewards of what God's given us, etc. So uh, myself and a couple of guys, we stole the bus and we took it down anyway. And we bust people out for the whole day. And we took them to um, schools because schools were the only people who were taking these people in and sheltering them. And I, what the hell am I doing working for an institution that says they care about the poor and the you know the outcasts in society, but then when the pinch comes to you know shove, they're they're like protecting their bus and making sure their furniture doesn't get scuffed. And I started standing up and sort of talking quite strongly about this stuff. And I was basically told, "Shut up, or you're going to get fired." And I said, "I can't shut up. This stuff is important." And so I was fired. Sean suddenly found himself not only without work, but without the identity that he had imagined would define his entire life. He worked a few service jobs, but eventually picked up the camera and tried to make a go of it as a photographer. Though admittedly, he is still a work in progress, he has managed to create a large following for himself on YouTube and Instagram, sharing his philosophy about choosing to lead a creative life. His openness and his honesty have earned him a huge following as a voice of sincerity in a sea of hucksters, and self-promoters. When I, when I was starting out in photography, I did what everyone does, which is jump on YouTube and look for a bunch of tutorials to teach yourself kind of one question at a time. And I remember watching a lot of photographers who looked like they were super popular and always busy and a huge stream of clients and very successful and rich. That's how they portrayed themselves the whole time and they worked hard to do that. And um, that made me feel bad about myself because I felt like if I'm progressing along the way, why isn't that happening for me? And then I watched a few months later and they just totally disappeared off the map and folded because they went bankrupt. And I'm like, oh, they were lying because most of them do. Like they, that's the, the game you play on, on those platforms is, is you're doing it as much to market yourself and how successful you are because you're hoping to get business from it. And that's how a lot of them approach it. Um, but I made a decision to do exactly the opposite to that. And, and because I wanted me talking about photography and my journey to encourage guys who are just starting out to go, listen, if things aren't working out for you, 
don't give up, keep going because I'm 10 years, 15 years in, if you include the freelancing I was doing before, and things aren't working out for me yet in a lot of ways. Just keep going. This is how it works for most of us. And anyone who's telling you that they're these overnight successes, the vast majority of them are lying and the others are very lucky. We'll talk to Sean about recovering from loss and redefining oneself and how his previous career helped shape his new one. And later, I'll share with you how a momentary encounter with the actress Angela Bassett helped me to come to terms with regret. Welcome to The Candid Frame. Well, Sean, welcome to The Candid Frame. It's a pleasure. It's a pleasure to have you. I've been watching your YouTube videos for a while, and that's how I came to find you and uh, I've really had, have enjoyed your, your presentations and as you revealed in several of your videos you were formerly a, a priest and, and a pastor and I know that for many people faith is a big component of, of one's personal life but it seems to have factored in to your, to your creative life as well since you left the priesthood and I'm, I want to start off with you giving us an idea of how you came to your faith. I think I actually found faith because I was a bit lost, really. So, I mean, my dad left home when I was very young, probably about four years old. And I think, not that I remember him that well at that age, obviously, but from all accounts, he was my hero. I had a big connection with him as a child. And when he left, it sort of left a big hole. And then my mom remarried, but I wasn't, I never felt very much a part of that new family that was starting. In fact, I was very excited when I, uh, she did get remarried because I thought m myself and my brother, we, was, we were like, this is gonna be great. We're gonna get a dad again. This is really exciting. And I, I remember eight, nine years old, calling him dad for the first time. They, they'd been married for, maybe a month or two and he very quickly put me straight and said no 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 I'm not your dad but your sister who's coming like I'm her dad so the line mm. was drawn like quite hard I mean obviously that's not really a good thing to say to a kid but he, he shame he was a sweet guy he just didn't know how to talk to kids that was his that was his thing so I, I kind of again and that was just sort of the stage where I was shipped off to boarding school so 9, 10, 11 years old I'm, I, my family were living in uh, Lesotho in southern Africa but I was being sent back to boarding school uh, in the UK, so sort of three times, six times a year, backwards and forwards. I think I, I grew up pretty fast as a kid from that age because I just suddenly realized, you know, even just sitting on a flight on your own at nine years old, going to school, being sent away from a family, not feeling much a part of it, I think I was always looking for something to grab onto. And then uh, the school that I was sent to in the UK was a Roman Catholic school. It wasn't that I, it wasn't that I kind of got stuck in with Roman Catholicism necessarily, but I loved to go sit in the back of the chapel for some reason. It just felt like a, a safe, quiet space. And something in that, and it was also at the same kind of time, I was, I was very interested in ghosts and the supernatural and that kind of stuff. So there was all this kind of seeking after something more. And that was kind of up until about 11, 12. And then I went to South Africa to high school and it was a, it was a Baptist school, which is a far more kind of Protestant evangelical kind of stream of things. And I got pulled in there because I was, well, well two reasons. One, one was one of the teachers there who was kind of in charge of that whole Christian community took me on a bit more deliberately because he could see I was a bit rootless, I think. And that sort of father figure was obviously very attractive to me. And the fact that there was a community which I was accepted into straight away. So that's definitely how I got in. 
And then straight out of high school, I joined a group and I joined it more for the kind of music and drama side. It was this group that traveled the country doing shows and it was sort of Christian based. And that was definitely more what I wanted to do than, than necessarily go out and, you know, get people saved or whatever it was. And I think getting into that kind of made me think, oh, I'm actually, I'm quite good at this and I enjoy it. Maybe I should make a career out of this. And things kind of went from there, sort of getting involved with church and, yeah. Well, what was uh, the catalyst for you sort of leaving the, the, the priesthood? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I was doomed from the start, really, because I, <laughs> I uh, before I went to seminary, I think I was better prepared to be a, a pastor for life. But I think uh, we were really, really lucky when I went to seminary. We, we had three full-time lecturers in particular who really encouraged us to, to think for ourselves. They weren't going to sort of hand us the answers on a piece of paper. And we had a very varied class. So this is in South Africa now. And we had 30 people in the class, men, women, Kosa, Zulu, uh, Indian uh, South Africans, English-speaking white South Africans, Afrikaans-speaking white South Africans, a, a proper melting pot of people. And it kind of got me, you know, I've, I've been in church circles by then sort of for a good five or six years. Mm -hmm. And I, I had very, very clear ideas about how the world worked and what God was and how everything was. And, and I think getting in a room like that with people coming from very different traditions and things, and the fact that my very simplistic answers to how everything was didn't fit other people's experiences at all. The lecturers we had let us talk that out. And they wouldn't jump in and say, well, no, you're wrong, you're right. They'd say, okay, well, this is great. Keep talking this out because this is the world and this is life. You can't ignore this stuff and sit in your box with your tiny answers. And they send us down to the library and said, there's a world of books down there and out there and go and read everything you can and bring it back. And I think starting to think and read for myself, a lot of it, you know, you start pulling at threads and a lot of stuff starts coming undone, you know. By the time I got into church and was ordained, I knew I couldn't last because I knew too much at that point. And I was never going to sort of hold the status quo. So I spoke out a lot about the way the church spent their money and how that matched up with the things that they said were important. And it, it kind of came to a head in, in about 2008, actually. There were very serious xenophobic attacks in South Africa where local South Africans were attacking uh, immigrants coming in from Somalia and um, Angola and Zimbabwe coming to look for work because they felt that they were coming to take jobs and people were dying in the streets you know they were having their shops set on fire and they were being beaten to death and this is the time I was working for church in Cape Town and I uh, said to the church we need to do something we need to get down there now and I said you know let's take the bus and at least just get people out and they said no we can't do that because you know we've been given this bus and we have to be good stewards of what God's given us etc so myself and a couple of guys we stole the bus and we took it down anyway and we bust people out for the whole day and we took them to schools because schools were the only people who were taking these people in and sheltering them and I thought, what the hell am I doing working for an institution that says they care about the poor and the you know the outcasts in society but then when the pinch comes to you know shove they're, they're like protecting their bus and making sure their furniture doesn't get scuffed and I started standing up and sort of talking quite strongly about this stuff and I was basically told shut up or you're going to get fired and I said I can't shut up this stuff is important and so I was fired so and I by that point I knew it was coming anyway and it was the right time and so I used that as an opportunity and a a springboard to sort of move off and start something from scratch and that was I just turned 30 pretty much when that happened and then sort of had to start from the beginning again. Well that's quite a dramatic shift because here you are living a life that you think you're going to spend your, your whole lifetime 
doing, you know, in this case, being a priest. Yeah. And suddenly you are faced with an unknown. And all that confidence that you had in terms of what your path was, what your work was going to be, is suddenly sort of ripped out of your ripped out of your hands, you know? Yeah. To my thinking, this is a moment of, of crisis. How did you find yourself navigating through, through yeah. all that? Uh, I think crisis is a good word, actually, because it, it wasn't just that I walked away. You know, I was, I was kicked out. And when you work for a church, they are your, they, they, it's a weird thing because they are your job, but they're also your genuine community. These are mm-hmm. people you love and care about, and they're your friends and family in some ways. Overnight, because the church had made that official decision, most of them just treated me as if we never had a relationship. So it wasn't just that I lost a career or a job. It's that I instantly lost people who I thought cared about me and I cared about them, but suddenly realized it was predicated on a relationship that was maybe artificial, well, was definitely artificial when things were turned on their head. So not only was it, it was a proper crisis. I went to counseling for a good six to eight months to kind of unpack everything that had happened at that time because I just, you know, how do you make sense of all that? You know, what was my fault? What was, what was the institution's fault? What is just that the world sucks and it's difficult and things are complicated? Working all that out and and realizing that you know I needed to build something different in the future something that would last and work out how to have better relationships with people that weren't based on a convenient social club or something like that that, that were real there, there was a lot of stuff to work through and plus it was a massive hit to my ego if I'm honest because I was used to I mean when you work in a church and especially sort of in a city where you're doing lots of events and that kind of things you're you're kind of a little celebrity you're standing up on stages and you're talking to people and they're, they're hanging on your every word and then suddenly, I mean, in my case, I, I, I tried to switch to full-time photography straight away and failed totally because, you know, I wasn't good enough and no one knew who I was, so I wasn't going to get work. So I was waiting tables. But I was waiting tables down the road from the last church I worked for. So I had people coming in and instead of me standing on a stage, I'm serving them coffee and getting out of their way so they can carry on with their conversation. So mm. it was proper humiliating for a good three, two, three years in there as I had to kind of reboot everything from scratch. I mean, that's interesting that you, you lost more than just financial security. You lost the community. What did that experience of losing that community, losing those friends that you thought you had, how has that sort of affected you now in this world of YouTube and likes? And I think, I think it's true for a lot of people, but in, in your 20s, it's about numbers. It's about kind of how many friends can I get, you know? How big a friend group can I show that I have on Facebook or whatever rubbish it happens to be? And a lot of them are acquaintances, and a lot of them are, you know, people that you hang out with, but you don't really talk very deeply with. And I think that lesson taught me that I, w- I would... And I think this would have happened anyway, but it was sort of accelerated. I realized I would much rather have a, a much smaller group of deeper, truer friends than try and be popular. Because those are things that last. Because there were some incredible friends who I, I'm still friends with now who stuck with me through that, even though what I was doing was a threat to them as well on some level, who were pastors in other churches who I'd studied with. I mean, the fact that I was leaving was obviously, well, I had to make them ask questions as well, but they chose to keep that relationship going, and there are, those are friends I value. So the mm-hmm. way that I, I choose to engage and dig down with people now is very different. I look for different things, and I, I couldn't care less about how many there are, what kind of, you know, do I feel like I've got a big friendship group means nothing. It's, it's who are the people who I can pick up the phone with and, and just drop into that 
deep life vulnerable conversation with as quickly as possible. And I, I value those people more than ever because I realize how important they are. And the other stuff, I really don't care about that much anymore. I mean, it's, I, I'm, I'm happy to meet as many people as I can and be as friendly with whoever you meet. Or It's interesting because it, it, it makes you think about the social media stuff differently as well because getting involved with a YouTube or an Instagram, I don't take numbers seriously at all. It's not people you meet. It's not, it's not interactions that have a lot of depth to them. It's great that people are, are responding to it, but you can't take that stuff seriously. You can't because the people in your life who are very valuable, who are going to get you through tough times, that's, the, that's, that's the, the few relationships that you have to sink as much time and energy into as possible and really build them strong. And everything else is optional as far as I'm concerned, you know. Sometimes those circumstances for me have been a blessing because I get to get rid of people who I really didn't need in my life. <laughs> you know, bye-bye. Thank you very much. Yeah. But still, in this world where we're producing all this, this content and we mm. have an audience and people are giving us feedback and, and all of those things, right? Yeah. And how has that translated to your experience in terms of putting these videos out and getting all this feedback? Well, it helps you kind of sift out feedback, you know, as well, because I, I don't... It's not that I don't listen to feedback from people. I just don't take a lot of it very seriously unless, you, unless you've actually journeyed with me a little bit and you understand me. And, and the, the, the people who can actually say to me, and I know this sounds like arrogance, I understand that, but it, I, this is how I feel. You know, I have a small group who can say to me, I think you're going off track, you need to sort this out, and everything else is just noise. Because the people who are telling you in your photography or whatever that you're, you're losing the plot will disagree with each other as well. It just becomes noise from both sides. It's best just to tune it out and to really focus on the people who understand and have journeyed with you a bit. And mm -hmm. that was a great lesson in that. Because people who sort of threw you aside, you know, when I left the church, who just went, well, we're washing our hands of this guy. You know, their opinion, I realized, meant a lot to me before that day. But afterwards, I suddenly realized, like, wow, it'll turn on a dime based on their own situation. It's not about me. It's about them protecting their lifestyle or their decisions or their worldview. And it's not about us as human beings relating to each other as equals. You know, people get very defensive very fast. So, yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a great book that uh, I recommend to everyone, I talk about it all the time, uh, it's a book by a guy named Richard Raw called Falling Upward and he sort of talks about, he unpacks Jung's idea about the two halves of life and sort of talks about how, you know, the first half of life you construct your box and your box is how you feel about, you know, what you think about politics or the world or, you know, um, God or religion or science or who you want to marry, what job you want to have, what white picket fence, what car you want to drive. You construct this idea and then some point in your life there's a crisis and the crisis for me is obviously ob obvious. I mean, I think we have many crises often as well. And you have to make a decision because the crisis that you've just hit doesn't aren't the box you've constructed doesn't answer the questions that that crisis has just thrown up. So now you have a choice. Do you let that box fall apart and kind of move into a second half of life which is more willing to accept paradox or you're more you're you're less needing to define everything as aggressively and you're you're more open to things and to hold things that feel disparate you can hold them together and you can hold them loosely and a lot of people i think can't do that or choose not to do that and they retreat into their box they reinforce it and they just fight anybody 
and defend that box like crazy. And I think when I left the church and I, I, I had that reaction from people, I, I felt that in a very real sense. Wow, if you, if you mess with people's boxes, even through your own life choices, you're going to get a backlash. It's not about you. That's about what they feel they need to protect. And so that goes into choosing relationships going forward. I need those people who aren't threatened by my decision, who don't care what I choose or don't, because they've moved into that more generous, open half of life and they care about you as a person beyond your decisions and they're willing to journey with you you know into whatever comes next and that's kind of been a good rubric for me you see that resistance to pushback among photographers especially with this combative dialogue between which brand is better and which is is not uh it's no different for photographers it's interesting isn't it because i mean like now i feel like this is such an important conversation in so many fields like in politics, it's important. I mean, we're tearing ourselves apart in the West with this very kind of polarized left-right divide. And more than ever, like, I'm trying to be very hard on myself about being a centrist and, and trying to hear both sides because I think that's the only way we're actually going to pull things back together in the long run. And it's that less rigid approach. Like, I need to be defined by my exact sort of doctrine of beliefs about how I think the world should work and more open to holding things loosely. And, and like you say, there's, an, there's absolutely a, a parallel with photography. I mean, I, I put a video out. I don't talk about gear on my channel a lot at all, but I recently moved over to Sony. And I thought, if I don't, if I don't talk about why it's going to cause issues, I'm going to have to answer a million comments if I just start shooting with a Sony in a video. So I thought, just make a quick video and, and explain why that it's not about the fact that they're brilliant cameras or anything like that. It's just the right tool to do the mix of video and photography that I do. So it's just the right tool in the hand. I'm not selling it to anyone. In fact, I think, you know, I've absolutely loved my Fuji cameras. I recommend them to everyone. I've built my career so far on Canon. I absolutely love them. It really doesn't matter what brand you use. But the way that it kicked off in the comments, even from the very middle of the road, not trying to shout about any brand, I really couldn't care less. It's not what I'm about. Made me realize how polarizing stupid details can be for photographers and how they define themselves by the gear that they shoot or by the technique that they choose to shoot with as if to prop it up. And like you say, I think there's a parallel with that journey as well where... Every photographer, and it's, it's good to go through that stage. Don't, don't, don't hear me saying that building that box is bad. You have to build that box before you can let it fall apart. It's absolutely necessary to do that and to go through that stage and enjoy it. But at some point, you, you I mean, I've, I've, I feel like a bit of a baby photographer. I mean, I, I just spoke at a conference up north and just talking, other people on the bill were people like Tom Stoddart and Peter Dench, who are like, you know, career photojournalists. And I was just, so embarrassed to be speaking on the same stage with these people who are the real deal. And I'm just, I'm seriously, I feel like I'm in comparison, I'm messing around. I'm the guy who built his box and I'm in terms of photography and I'm just starting to let it fall apart and trying to work out what I even want to say. I, I you know, I went around trying to find every technique and let me shoot Brenizers and, you know, all these panorama stitches and then let me try fake tilt shift and, you know, all this stuff that you do for ages, which is great to experiment. But, you know, I've just started to put that stuff to bed and focus on what I want to say in the last sort of three or four years and, and really kind of hone in. And that, that feels like a necessary stage. You will get to a stage where, where you're obsessed with techniques and tutorials and the gear that you use. And that's fine and good to explore all that. But at some stage, you should start to hit another gear where you go, what do I, what I want to talk about? What do, I, what do I want to, what do I want to show people that I see? You know, what's, what am I putting in front of my camera might or hopefully does become more important than what I'm holding in my hand, you know? 
Well, you've been really honest about your struggles early on in your career as a professional photographer. What was the, the, the bigger issue? Was it your, your struggles in becoming a better photographer or was it lacking the skills to sort of market yourself as a photographer? It was both. It was, it was two things, really. The photographs weren't good enough to get hired. Yeah, I mean, I, I wasn't very good at the start. I, I don't mind saying I was funny because I was showing sort of images from the start of my journey at this conference. And, you know, there is there's this crazy stage I went through where I was sort of blue toning my black and whites to fake cyanotype stuff and fake tilt shifty things and stuff was just breaking up. It was looked horrendous. Like there definitely was some of that. And I had to learn to shoot clean and more maturely and more consistently. But I think it was also, I'm a terrible marketer. Hmm. You know, I can do... I can do the job. Like now I can do the job, but I'm in terms of just being a, a successful photographer, I'm still not a successful photographer. I've maybe had five purely photography jobs this whole year. I've been hired for five jobs. It's very, very hard to go out there and fight with a hugely competitive market to get work coming in, you know? So I, I still struggle with that. I still struggle with how to market myself and how to put myself out there. I'm just not very good at being aggressive enough to get in the room and tell people why they should hire you. And, and unfortunately, unless you know all the right people, that's kind of what you have to do. You have to sort of really push yourself. So yeah, it's both of those really. Uh, the photography's got better than marketing, only marginally so, I think. <laughs> I mean, such periods are really valuable, but to be quite honest, they can also s- suck. No, I d- and, and I loved it. I mean, I mean, the way that I made it work for, in my case was to go and get full-time photography jobs. I realized that my marketing side wasn't very strong, and so I worked for a good seven or eight years in four different companies as their full-time photographer running their studio. So okay. the first one was doing food and product photography for a company in South Africa, and then I worked back here in London doing large product photography, you know, sofas and dining sets and huge things like that and design the studio and, you know, having a big workflow of having to get through 50, 60 sofas in a day. Like it was, it was a full on production line and get the images cut out and clean, get them online and drop shadows and recoloring fabrics, all that kind of stuff. Uh, then there was kind of a luxury flash sale website in the UK called Ashika. That was a lot more kind of some product stuff, but a lot more kind of journo stuff and some video stuff in there as well. And then the last full-time gig was photography and video for a big international consultancy doing their photography and video for Europe, Middle East, and Africa. So that's how I made it work was going and getting the full-time gigs because my marketing side was pretty terrible in terms of marketing myself constantly ongoing for freelance work. It just kind of took the pressure off a little bit. And the only reason I've been able to jump to freelance now, to be honest, is the social media stuff because I can... I almost lean on that more as a teacher than a photographer. I think I make more money now as a teacher than a photographer, even though it is photography that I'm teaching. So it's not a clean journey at all. It's kind of I'm, I'm fumbling through it as I go and making you know, whatever I can make work. Mm-hmm. But, but yeah, it's a love of photography and, and, and filmmaking that keeps me going. I think it's an incredibly powerful medium to tell stories. And that's the funny thing is uh, I'm still at heart a storyteller. That's what I want to do. And that's, that's, that's why I got a kick out of speaking in churches and communicating because I love the storytelling of it. I love to sit somewhere or speak to a group of people and have them leave inspired to go make their life a bit better somehow. I really get a kick about that. And if I can do that through photography or filmmaking, I mean, my wife jokes about my YouTube channel. I've just found a way to keep preaching. You know, that's, that's, all, I've ma- <laughs> that's all I've managed to do. And she's not wrong. You know, it is 
that is what I get a kick out of. I'm not trying to, you know, pull people into a religion anymore. That's not the important thing. It's, but I do want people to leave and, and better themselves and that, and whatever it is. And it's not always about photography, but photography is the subject, broadly speaking, if that makes sense. I have been touched by the many people who have been reaching out to me to let me know what the show means to them. Whether it's been in emails, instant messages, reviews, and in-person encounters, I have been touched by people telling me how the show has made a difference in their lives. Now, when I say I'm grateful for that, I, I think that the words inadequately capture what such comments mean to me. Because likely, just like you, I'm busy doing the work, checking the things off the to-do list, completing chores, and just living life. And it's easy to forget that some of those actions are making a difference in someone else's life. It's especially important to hear on days when, well, days that are more of a challenge. But as many of you have reached out and helped contribute financially to the show over the past weeks and months and years, I have become even more determined to make the show better. It's a lot of work, but I know because of you that it's all worth it. And I want to keep doing it. And I could really do with your help to make that happen. We are working towards our goal of 100 new Patreon supporters, each of which commits to a reoccurring donation of $5 or more a month. We're past the halfway mark, and your donations are already making a big difference. If this show encourages and inspires you, become a Patreon supporter today. Your modest donation can and will make a huge difference. So if you haven't already, please take the time to do it today. You've been thinking about it, but today is the day you finally do it. Thanks. Well, one of the things I, I really appreciate about your YouTube channel is the sincerity that you bring to the entire conversation that you have with us with each video. So much of what's on YouTube and on public media is so much hucksterism, for lack of a better word. And I, I, I think that the way that you approach us as your audience is greatly appreciated. And uh, it makes me sort of anticipate each video that you uh, bring out, not just because you're talking on the subject of photography, but you bring a level of sensitivity and consideration to the practice of being creative. But, but let's be quite honest, it also makes you incredibly vulnerable. And you know, I, I increasingly I have been trying to put a little more of myself out there where I was very reticent at, at first. So when I see you and the, your approach, uh, to sharing your photography, your philosophy, your your personal approach to creativity, I, I I wonder how how much of a conscious choice was it to do it in this particular way? I mean, were you concerned at all as coming off as as preachy, hearkening back to the you know your previous career, or did you consider other ways of approaching what you do now? I don't know how to do it any other way, and and. and that's very kind of you to say. I, I do work very hard at being as vulnerable as possible because I feel like, and, and this is like when I say preaching, I, I understand 
and thank you for saving me. I know, I know what pops into people's heads that something feels preachy. It sort of puts you off. And I, but I didn't preach in a preachy way when I spoke in the church either. And that's why I got fired eventually, <laughs> because I spoke my mind and was honest about stuff. I was honest about the way I had huge doubts about things and would get emails every Sunday, every Monday morning telling me you can't say that as a leader in church. So I, I had the same thing on, I've always been that way. I would rather bear my soul in a, in a very vulnerable way and be criticized for something I really do think than have to defend stuff I really don't believe because I wanted to try and impress you. That just feels very false and I feel mm. like I'd be fighting a battle I don't believe in and then it's just all my ego. If you don't like me because you don't like me, I'm fine with that. I'm, I'm, I'm really fine with that. Because like I said, I mean, I, I, having that small group of tight friends is far more important to me now. I'm not out to try and impress everybody. And it leaves you free to really say what you think. And, and uh, you know, I've made decisions on my channel like I'm not going to partner with camera brands or sponsors. Because if you, if you do, somewhere in all their contracts and some far more heavy-handed than others they will tell you what you can and can't say about different brands or if you can even mention other brands and the big thing on my channel is i have said it really doesn't matter what camera you have in your hand you can have a phone and take incredible photos take more photos and and i'll never do anything for me that i i lose the freedom to speak my mind and i mm. I, I, I and it's also about trust right uh, yeah because i mean it, it is that and it's also i understand what you're saying it's also that i'm i'm telling stories about myself that are quite vulnerable and opening up about my dad leaving or about you know the messiness of my own journey and the rest of it but but because I kind of, I've owned it and I've dealt with it and, I, and I'm fine with all of it, you know, I don't mind telling anyone. I, I think it can make some other people feel a bit uncomfortable. And this is why I'm, I'm happy that my YouTube channel will probably always be way more niche than a lot of the big photography channels. And, and I want it that way because, because a lot of people are uncomfortable with that kind of vulnerability because they've got stuff in themselves they haven't dealt with or come to terms with yet. And someone else's vulnerability might really put them off. It's like overshare or, you know, however they feel about it. But I'm, I'm all right with that. There's no part of me that is worried about anything anyone could say because I've shared something honestly about myself. And I, d I don't know how to, I don't really know how to answer you properly, I think, because I, I, it's just always how I've been. It, that, that's never been a problem for me or never been a threat. Yeah, I'm not answering you, am I? But that's... No, 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 that's fine because, you know what, I think when you put yourself out there that way, the first thing you, a lot of people tend to do is they look at what other people are doing and they sort of adapt themselves to what they think the audience wants and, and it comes a time where you really have to trust yourself to just be yourself and to accept the fact that as flawed as you may think it is that that's okay and that there will be an audience for that it may not be as large as other people who have just these huge personalities but nevertheless there is a value to just presenting yourself you know, you know what it is, because I think when I, when I was starting out in photography, I did what everyone does, which is jump on YouTube and look for a bunch of tutorials to teach yourself kind of one question at a time. And I remember watching a lot of photographers who looked like they were super popular and always busy and a huge stream of clients and very successful and rich. That's how they portrayed themselves the whole time, and they worked hard to do that. That made me feel bad about myself, because mm -hmm. I felt like if I'm progressing along the way, why isn't that happening for me? And then I watched a few months later and they just totally disappeared off the map and folded because they went bankrupt. And I'm like, oh, they were lying. Because most of them do. Like, they, that's the, yeah. the game you play, 
on those platforms is, is you're doing it as much to market yourself and how successful you are because you're hoping to get business from it. And that's how a lot of them approach it. But I made a decision to do exactly the opposite to that. And, and because I wanted me talking about photography and my journey to encourage guys who are just starting out to go, listen, if things aren't working out for you, don't give up. Keep going because I'm 10 years, 15 years in, if you include the freelancing I was doing before, and things aren't working out for me yet in a lot of ways. Just keep going. This is how it works for most of us. And anyone who's telling you that they're these overnight successes, the vast majority of them are lying and the others are very lucky. Mm-hmm. I mean, a guy who was really, I know you've had him on your show, Zach Arias. Oh, yeah, Zach. Was, was one of the few who I found very encouraging to watch because him talking about his photography career and being honest about how difficult it often was was a rare voice at that time. Um, I think it's a little more common now. Uh, and he was definitely an inspiration or a touch point for me to say when I go into this, in my own way, I want, I want to be vulnerable and, and honest about how things are working and definitely not working. So people have a good picture of what life is like as a photographer and how up and down and difficult it is nowadays. So when they're going in, they're going in sober and they can go in for the long haul because they're not disappointed by comparing themselves to the imagined success of YouTubers who just know how to talk a good game. You know, you talked earlier about this whole idea of um, creating a box for yourself that you eventually have to deconstruct. Mm. But right now, you are trying to create a a relatively new box for yourself in the form of a professional photographer. And you can define that in any variety of ways, right? Mm. But how are you, what kind of box are you trying to create for yourself now as, as a photographer? It's, it's always evolving, but I mean, the, the, the product stuff has been the way that I pay the bills by and large. That was kind of a good chunk of my career. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, very technical. Just get in and plow through stuff. It, it taught me a lot about lighting, which was great because sitting in studios all day and having to design light rigs that you could plow through things quickly and get good, consistent lighting. So I learned to the technical doing that. It's not a first love for me at all. It's not, it's not where I sit. They're kind of very... The very technical, detail-oriented stuff is not really me. So then I, 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 I was shooting portraits a lot on the side because that's, I think that's definitely a first love for me with photography is portraits and people. You know, that sort of links back to the church days. And before that, I studied psychology and those kind of things as well. I've always had a fascination with people. That's definitely the kind of strongest passion for me in terms of photography and the thing I feel I have to explore the deepest and the longest into my career that I probably will have something to say with. And then the street photography stuff has come up more recently and that was an antidote to the, to the product stuff because, you know, being in a studio for, you know, 40, 50, 60 hours a week shooting through products was pretty mind-numbing and going like, I'm starting to hate photography because it's becoming just a technical exercise. And it was just an antidote. I started walking around my phone, just going, going, I'm just going to go on a walk every evening and just shoot a few images on my phone and force myself to post one to Instagram a day just to give myself a goal. And I started doing that. And then I picked up a Fuji X100 which just, I fell in love with that little camera. I think a lot of people fall in love with them. They're, they're amazing. And just that kind of very tactile, old school way of you know, changing your settings and going back to something that it felt a lot simpler and more in touch than like you know, having to worry about multiple strobes and DSLRs. 
And again, that kind of took the, the street photography up another jump and that 35 mil equivalent focal length sort of, I, I don't, I, I'm quite shy to sort of get in people's faces on the streets. I'm sort of a more of a stood back street photographer. I shoot more for kind of space and light than, than, than faces or anything. If people are in the frame, it's often more for a sense of scale. But uh, yeah, so that kind of thing. And that, that really sort of made me fall back in love with photography. And I think the future for me is probably going to be some combination of the portrait in the street. I mean, my, my dream job would always have been to go and be a journalist, a photojournalist and tell stories with photography. But to do that nowadays is incredibly hard because the magazines and newspapers are locking all that stuff down. They're getting rid of most of those jobs. They're crowdsourcing imagery from people. And it's very, very hard to make a career in that. But I've got the, the next kind of phase for me is I'm starting to line up a few projects that are longer term, which includes some portraiture and some environmental stuff that will work together as specific stories. And I'm, I'm hoping in that I kind of find my very, very specific niche, if that makes sense. Well, one of the things that you've succeeded in doing is having a, a huge Instagram following. Mm. And I'm wondering how that sort of colors your perspective, not only about yourself, but, y- y- you know, your work. Well, I feel guilty about that Instagram following because it's not from Instagram. It's from YouTube. They've just come over from YouTube. So I I don't take it overly seriously. I mean, my photography hasn't got a lot better since my Instagram got bigger. And, you know, I I, I take all that stuff with a massive pinch of salt. I've got Mm -hmm. friends with a couple of hundred followers who are much better photographers than me and there are cats on the Internet with a few million (laughs) followers. So it really it really doesn't matter. Yeah, I mean, Instagram is far more there for me as a as a bit of accountability to keep shooting and to keep posting. So I still try and post one image a day. Doing that is just a nice goal to make sure that I'm out exercising if it's like a muscle, you know. Right. And again, it's, it's lovely to have people there and I really do enjoy interacting with people. It's a nice little community feel and I, I can do little meetups in different cities when I'm in a city from Instagram and get out and meet people. I absolutely love that stuff. But the kind of backwards and forwards and the trolls and that are kind of massive pinch of salt. And, and again, the numbers... I mean, it, it just doesn't mean anything, you know, it's, it, and I know that sounds ungrateful at a point, like people are following you, it, it doesn't, but it doesn't translate into, well, one, it doesn't translate into work, because most of the people who are following you are photographers, and I'm not getting hired by photographers, <laughs> um, it's, so I'm not getting photography jobs from this, and it's, uh, it's people who have connected with the teaching I'm doing, and they want to better themselves, and that's, that's lovely, I, lo- I love talking to people on messages who are, you know, struggling with something or need an answer to a quick question, I love answering those when I can, but in terms of it being a compliment about the fact that I'm an amazing photographer, it's not that at all. I mean, it, because it isn't that. It's, it's, it, most of the people who follow me are starter photographers. So to take that opinion too seriously, like again, going to this conference the other week and, you know, Tom Stoddard's got a fraction of the followers I've got on Instagram. Who cares? He's an infinitely better photographer than I am. The fact that starter photographers who are enjoying the teaching that I'm doing think I'm good doesn't mean I'm a good photographer. It doesn't mean anything like that. It, it, it enables me to do, do things I love doing, like I can do a workshop and advertise it and people come out, I meet people and I get to teach. That's wonderful. But it's not, it's not the compliment that everyone thinks it is. It has to be taken with a pinch of salt. You know, there are these people who are encouraging everyone to get a podcast, to get a YouTube channel, and to put just 
content out there. And they tell you, put as much content as possible out there. Produce something not just once a week, but three or four times a week, which is incredibly labor intensive. And one of the things that I appreciate about you is that you're you're not following that mantra. You're being very sparse, for lack of a better word, with um, yeah. with your releases. Why? I mean, that's all it is. I, that's another decision I made going in, is I, is I, I just thought... Not to be too judgmental, but I watch a lot of YouTubers stretch a little bit of content a long way and it starts to get very, very thin. If you're doing one or two videos a week, even, I don't have one or two interesting things to make a whole video about every week. And, and I think the temptation is then you're, you're stuck to this very rigid timetable. I just have to put a video. I don't really have much. Oh, I'll just do something on this. And then the content can get a bit weak. And I feel like the, the channels that I just don't bother watching anymore, even though I might be subscribed to those ones, are the ones which, you know, I know every now and again they have a really good video, but most of the time they're just making a video to make a video. Right. Um, and I don't want to do that. I, I, I made a decision early on, and I, it's in my channel trailer, and I say I will only put out one video a month. And this year I've managed to do two videos a month, but no one's really noticed. But I, I put up front one video a month because I know I can write, shoot, and edit one quality video a month that I feel like I have something interesting to say that's richer than just me making a quick video to, to hit a schedule. So I, 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 I've sort of nailed my colors to the mast up front and uh, if people want to subscribe to that, they can, but I'm not, I'm not doing it any different because I know I will be tempted to make crap to fill a schedule. And it, it hasn't, I mean, people do say, you know, you have to put out as much stuff as possible. And I know, I mean, I, I could do a bunch of different things to make my channel grow fast. I could make more videos and I could make them more about gear. My channel will grow much faster. I mean, that Sony video I put out has gave me way more subscribers than any other video by far, but I would hate it. I'd hate the content. I have to enjoy doing this as well, or it's not sustainable, you know? So it's just, it's been decisions one at a time. And, you know, the channel's grown fine. I mean, I, it's attracting an audience and it's attracting what I love about the people who hang out on my channel is there's like a really respectful, by and large, there's a really respectful uh, quality of conversation and people are very, very supportive of each other. And I feel like if I stick to what I'm doing, the way that I'm doing it, it will attract like-minded people and hopefully a community will form around it that supports each other. I mean, people are connecting with each other separate to the channel because they found the channel and supporting each other and showing each other their work and journeying together and people who meet at meetups and different things like that. And I think that's, that's brilliant. You know, that's, that's, that's where it's at. So for me, that's far more important than just, you know, filling a schedule. You know, the challenge of producing any kind of content, whether it's a podcast or a YouTube channel, is trying to come up with subject matter to talk about. Because as much as I'm invested in this, um, I'm also trying to be sort of an entertainer, an educator. And so I always have to consider, you know, what might serve the audience. But sometimes, I have to be quite honest, I choose guests or I choose con uh, subjects for the, my YouTube channel that kind of serve, serve me. What's it like for you? You know what it is more? It's more, we, we, used to have to, we used to have a saying when we were in seminary that we preach best what we need to hear most. Mm, okay. I think it's more that. I think I find so often that I make a video because I know I've hit a wall and then I have to push myself to journey to the next stage or I have to shut the channel down because I'm a hypocrite. Because <laughs> okay. I'm not journeying. So for example, like I knew at a stage that I was... Um, stagnating with my portraits. I, I, was shoot, I was doing what everyone does and there's nothing wrong with this. You, know, you go into model mayhem and you find a lot of models, you shoot TFP or for free and you build up your portfolio and that's great. That, that's a great way to do it. 
but I was getting very, very bored, for want of a better phrase, of shooting pretty white people. It's just boring. It was really, really boring. <laughs> okay. And I thought, I need, to, I need to do more than this. This is just silly, you know? And, and I started to look at who my heroes were. And I made this video, which was how to choose a direction for your photography. And I said two things. I said, one is you need to look at the photography you do that makes you lose track of time, mm-hmm. which for me was portraits, obviously not product photography. That made time go very slowly. <laughs> also, you need to look at who are your heroes and then put their work in front of you. What is the work you look at that just makes yeah. your heart sing? And for me, it was... Salgado and Steve McCurry and Jimmy Nelson stuff with the tribes and Joey L's personal work that he's doing on the side of his commercial stuff, Mm -hmm. which just hurts my heart, you know? And I thought, right, okay, that's the next step. But I made that video, I put it out there and I'm like, well, now I have to go do it. So that's when I had to buy a plane ticket and go to Namibia and shoot with the Himba tribe to kind of explore what that would be like, put my money where my mouth is. So I've made a video that trapped me into having to make the next, next move or I'm a hypocrite. Mm-hmm. And then I shot those and I, I put those out there and then came back and I printed those images uh, and um, I actually took them down to Genesis Imaging in London here and the guy who's the creative head there, he prints work for Magnum photographers. He's a big deal. And I took these images in with the back of my mind. I was just sort of going, he's, he's going to like these. He's going to say something nice about them. And he didn't say anything when he was printing them. And I, was, I thought, okay, I've got to ask him. I said, what do you think? Do you have any feedback? And he, he said, uh, I don't care about these at all, I'm afraid. Wow. And I'm like, oh gosh, okay, why? Do you want to say more? And he said, yeah, well, you know, they're technically good photographs. There's nothing wrong with them at all. And they're really interesting looking people, but they just don't say anything. They're too clean. They're not gritty enough. There's no story in them. And he didn't say it to be unkind all he was actually the way he said it was kinder than I'm putting it but it's it made me realize right okay so that was a false step for me and then I went to South Africa basically on the back of that going okay right now I've done this I made a mistake I didn't make a mistake doing that I'm proud of the images they're fine I almost went there as an easy step to go shoot interesting people is it a great photograph because I'm a great photographer because they're fascinating looking people I'm Mm. leaning on something you know, and I thought, right, okay, that felt a little bit exploitative in a way. So now what do I do? Okay. So I went to South Africa and I decided to do a very, very simple project, just shooting one light Rembrandt, strip everything back, just a 50 mil, shooting three portraits with three of my mentors over the years. And because I had a personal connection with them and they're much simpler photographs, something about that felt a lot more honest and a lot more gritty and a lot more story-like because it was connected with my story. That felt like the next step forward. So when I start talking about that in a video now, I have to stick to that. And I have to say, right, this is the direction I'm going. So I'm almost sort of talking myself into my future Mm. by having to stick to the lessons I'm learning and force myself forward, which is great, actually, because you've got a whole group of people going who are are paused to call you a hypocrite if (laughs) if you don't stick to what you're saying or what you're learning, you know? I mean, as hard as that criticism must feel, to receive, and I know why, that's why a lot of people are sort of averse to to sharing the, their work. But man, that is so key to being able to to grow because the peril is you get good at some type of photography, and the trap you can fall into is that you just repeat that endlessly, which just grows into frustration, dissatisfaction, you know, with the work, so on and, and so on and so forth. So part of putting yourself out there and sort of embracing criticism, rejection, um, you know, thoughtful, thoughtful criticism, not the, the trolling kind, is that it really offers a really wonderful opportunity for us as, as photographers to be able to take a great leap forward, you know, to really have an experience with our creativity that is really 
transitional and can lead us into even bigger or even in greater things. I love that. A transitional is exactly the way it is, isn't it? Because the work you're doing is always evolving and you know it. As soon as I've done a project, I don't really like the images anymore. I'm moving on to the next. And to have to sit and obsess and talk about them with people who are fixating on it is, is sometimes a bit of a drag because it's mm-hmm. like, no, I don't, I don't even really stand by this. I'm just, I'm moving, you know, and we're all moving. So don't get hung up on it. Let's do the next, especially if you're trying to post daily, like I'm posting with, with Instagram. Like a lot of that stuff is, I think about it more like just visual notes sometimes okay. rather than some complete photograph. You know, there was a, just like a, you know, a, like a nice tan brick wall with, you know, pink film on a window and a set of gloves sitting on the, the brick windowsill that definitely wasn't worth a photograph. But I just liked the colors, so I took it and I posted it. And, and you know, people are like, oh, this is not your... I'm like, yeah, but it's not, that's not why I'm posting. I understand, you know, I'm not trying to impress you with every image. I'm just, I'm just journeying, you know, and, and you're welcome to come along, but I can't answer for every little visual note I post and have to explain the deep meaning why t- there's no deep meaning. Yeah. Some of it is just random. Some I'm more proud of than others, and some I'd sell as prints I'm so proud of, but it's all a journey, you know. Well, my last question that I ask each guest is I ask them to recommend another photographer for our listeners to discover and explore on their own. And it can be anyone, someone that you've long admired or someone that you've recently discovered. So who would that photographer be and why? Well, I think just because he's been such an inspiration for me, the obvious one would be Joey Ells, but specifically his personal stuff. So uh, someone who's, and again, like I, I, you can watch him evolving as well. I went to his show in London. He was in London this week uh, showing uh, work he recently did for Charity Water. Uh, yeah, his, his work in, you know, starting in the African stuff and he, he did some stuff in Malaysia, I think, or Papua New Guinea maybe, Varanasi in India. Um, it's great and it evolves and it's beautiful, but I've, I've really connected with his, his more recent stuff, which feels more natural, naturally lit. He, he embedded with the Kurd fighters in Syria. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, more recently, charity water stuff as well. And he's he's always challenging to me because he feels like a great mix between a, a very proficient technical photographer, very very clean imagery, but he's trying to tell stories every time, and you can tell stories important to him. And I feel like, again, like and he, he doesn't do it perfectly, just like no one does it perfectly. But he he's for me been a, a bit of a, a bit of a, a goal in terms of moving towards story but taking taking the technical proficiency along with you he's he's really really good yeah um and just a little shout out as well to a friend of mine actually a guy named andre uh, vacek who's um a friend of mine he uh is a great guy just to have he's a young he's a young guy who actually works at wex here in london which is a photography store like it's a, it's our bnh basically he is sort of great he came out of street photography and he's he's felt like he wants to do conflict photography mm. and he's just he went off and studied conflict photography went on a course and now he's just come back from recently came back from ukraine on the front lines with the the conflict with russia there just a, a, a young guy who's again like you know not, not necessarily one of these career guys but a young guy who's who's who came back with this story which he just called a photo essay called the forgotten war with some really heartbreaking imagery, not necessarily of soldiers on the front line either, which she also had in the mix, but, but of, you know, villagers who are stuck on the front line and can't leave their homes, who are living in their own cellars to hide from shells and stuff. And I, I found his stuff really affecting, and I think he's, he in the future is going to be someone um, to watch. So checking him out as well, O-N-D 
O-N-D-R-E-J and Vacek, V-A-C-H-E-K, I think. So, so I can give you a link if you, if you want to stick it in the thing. Yeah, I mean, again, like, a, like you know, not with a massive following or anything, but definitely uh, if, if, you, if you want to see someone who's kind of just getting his teeth started, like if you, a guy has just gone to his first conflict and came back with an interesting story, he, he definitely deserves a little mention, yeah. Well, thanks for that, and just thank you for making time for me here. Well, thank you, I've loved it, man. Sorry I missed you in Paris. <laughs> Now for a segment in the show where I share thoughts, ideas, and memories that may or may not involve photography. We call it The Last Frame. Disappointments are a part of life. They can't be avoided. You strive for something big or something small, and when it doesn't pan out, you feel sad, frustrated, maybe even angry. But hopefully, you move on. You reassess and you try again, maybe numerous times. And then the things you were hoping for finally manifest themselves. But even if it doesn't, you have an appreciation for having made the effort. At least you tried. Regrets, however, are about when you didn't try, when you didn't make the effort. It's a sliver of time. When an opportunity presented itself and you let it pass you by or you let it slip through your fingers, there's no lesson learned. There's no moment of catharsis. The only thing it leaves you with is this dull, heavy feeling in your gut of what could have been. And the insidiousness of regrets is that they accumulate. They have a stickiness to them that make them difficult to forget and discard. Each new regret latches onto the old ones and becomes a growing amorphous blob that finds a home deep in your gut. That mass inside of me was huge. It was a collection of moments when I had a choice to make, an action to take, and instead I did nothing. I was left only with thoughts of what could have been if I had just said or done something different. What if I had gone up to that girl that I had a crush on and it introduced myself? What if I had applied to grad school immediately after graduating college? What if I hadn't turned down that offer to teach English in Japan? What if I had just written that letter to my grandmother before she passed away? What if, what if, what if? There were so many of these that found a home inside of me. Even though they happened years ago, they would sometimes pop into my head, and it would feel like it was happening all over again. The years didn't matter. The feeling of loss and sadness were right there and likely felt much worse than they had when I first experienced them. I think I could have easily lived my whole life like that if it weren't for the actress, Angela Bassett. From the very first moments I saw her on screen, I was in awe. It wasn't just because she was beautiful and talented. It wasn't a celebrity crush. Each time I saw her on screen, she had a presence that was unlike anything I'd ever seen. She was a presence, and an unapologetic one. Here she was, a black woman, who in so many of her characters embodied a sense of confidence and determination that I rarely saw exhibited on screen, at least in the form of a human being that resembled me. 
When I would see her, I saw something that I wanted. A sense of identity and strength that didn't need to be excused or explained or justified. It just was. And I said to myself that one day, if I ever met her, I would tell her that and let her know how much I appreciated what she gave me each time I saw her perform. Some years ago, a group of us were invited to an award show that was being filmed for television here in Los Angeles. It was held at the Universal Amphitheater, and we were seated way back in the nosebleed seats. Now, I'm not a big fan of such shows, but it provided an excuse to get out and be among friends. And they began giving out awards, and one of the first presenters was, of course, Angela Bassett. And the moment that I saw her up there on that stage, I stopped listening and watching what was in front of me. It just all became a blur. She finished her presentation, and she was escorted to her seat, front row, stage right. And in that moment, all I'm thinking about as I'm sitting there is that if I leave this building without trying to say something to her, it's going to be just one more regret that I have to live with. And I guess I had just reached the point where I just couldn't accept one more regret. So I'm sitting there, feeling my heart pounding in my chest. My hands are sweating. And I'm thinking, this is just crazy. And then I noticed at the first commercial break that there's a lot of movement in the seats on the floor where the celebrities and the VIPs are. And I realized that many of these people moving around are seat fillers. And seat fillers are people who literally fill in the empty seats in an auditorium during televised award shows to give the impression that every seat is taken. You know, they want it to look good. And I realized in that moment that if I walked down one of the aisles during one of those breaks, I just might be able to pass myself off as one of those seat fillers and get past the security people that were positioned in each aisle to prevent people like me from mixing with the VIPs. So I had a plan. And I'm thinking that if I don't make it past one aisle, at the commercial break, I'll move to another aisle and maybe I can make it through then. So at the next break, I immediately get up and start walking. I don't say anything to my wife or our friends. I just start moving. So I'm walking down the aisle that's closest to her, thinking all the while that this is crazy and stupid, but knowing that there is no way I'm going to turn around. I may not reach her, but at least I'm going to try, because all I knew for sure was that I could live with trying and failing. Failing was a better option than regret. So the aisle is full of people, and I'm moving around and past them, seeing myself getting closer and closer to the security guy positioned in the middle of the aisle. I'm not looking directly at him, but I'm aware of his presence as I get ever closer. And an important part of this story is that this night was the same evening that the Lakers were in the finals. I can't remember who they were playing or what year it was. It really doesn't matter. What does matter was when I was just a few yards from the security guy, someone over the PA announced that the Lakers had won the game. And suddenly, there was pandemonium. People were yelling and screaming, jumping up and down, and none of it mattered to me. Because at that moment, 
I'm at the spot I've got to get past. And I can see from the corner of my eye the security person looking in my direction. And in the midst of that spontaneous celebration, I get behind a woman and gently place my hand visibly on her shoulder, creating the impression that I'm with her. And I'm in. I get down to the first row, turn, and there she is, dressed in this beautiful white gown. I get down on my knee and lean close to her because I don't want to be drowned out by all that noise. And without even being conscious of it, I've taken her hand in mine and I started talking. And for the life of me, I can't remember what I said to her. I don't think it even matters. All I remember is her looking intently into my eyes as I spoke. And when I was done, I leaned in a little further and planted a kiss on her cheek. And that was it. And as I walked up that aisle, I felt such a sense of freedom. It wasn't about meeting a celebrity. It was elation about just feeling liberated. That evening was not going to be another night where I would have to live with the shame of never having tried. That night was the beginning of me throwing off my past regrets and not accumulating new ones. Because once I had tasted what it felt like to take the action and say the words, I couldn't go back to silence in action and living that life of quiet desperation. One day, if and when I meet her again, I will tell her that story and what it meant to me. And it's very likely to happen because she lives not too far from me and I know people who know her, but I'm not looking to make it happen. Because what really matters to me is that I defiantly resisted embracing another regret and discovered what it can feel like to say yes to myself. Mark Twain says it better than anyone when he says, 20 years from now, you will be more disappointed by the things you didn't do than the ones you did. So, throw off the bowlines, sail away from the safe harbor, catch the trade winds in your sails, explore, dream, discover. And that's the last frame. Thanks to Sean for coming on the show. You can find out more about him and his work by visiting seantucker.photography.com. And some of you may not know that I have a YouTube channel where I discuss different aspects of photography from lighting, composition, and a whole lot more. I do this with the help of images that listeners submit to the Candid Frame Flickr poll. It's an opportunity for us to see each other's work and provides me a way to discuss my ideas and approaches to photography. You can check out the TCF Flickr poll and our YouTube channel by clicking on the links in the show notes or the website. And my new book, Making Photographs, Developing a Personal Visual Workflow, is now available. If you feel stuck or are struggling with making good images on a consistent basis, this book is the solution. I believe that it can and will help you to learn a new way of seeing. You can order the book today. When you place your order from the Rocky Nook website, use the promo code Pirello40 to receive 40% off the list price. Check out the website and the show notes for the link. 
And if you want to keep up with all things Candid Frame, sign up for our mailing list and you'll receive three copies of my previously published ebooks. And if you like what you've been hearing on the show, please take the time today to write a review in the iTunes store as it helps our ranking and creates greater awareness of the show. Thanks to Robert C79 and Nebulous1966 from the US and Cami Mendez from Canada for their five-star reviews. You can also support the show by making a monthly contribution through Patreon, or you can make a one-time contribution via PayPal. You'll find the links for both in the show notes and the website. Thanks to Chris Allen, Roseanne Ecker, Ryan Davies, Robert Williams, Mark McGuire, and Scott Featherman for their recent contributions. I can't thank you enough. And if you want to easily access every episode of The Candid Frame, download the Candid Frame app. It's available for both Apple iOS and Android, and it's free. Download it today, and you'll find it where everything else is, in the show notes or the website at thecandidframe.com. The Candid Frame's audio engineer is Martin Taylor, who you can find at theothermartintaylor.com. The show's senior producer is Cynthia Parker, and our music is from Kevin McLeod, whose royalty-free music can be found at incompetech.com. And you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at simply at X. And this is X, and this is The Candid Frame.